Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Master the NEC, where we talk about the National Electrical Code and all things electrically related. My name is Paul Abernathy, your host. Welcome to our podcast today. Today is my birthday. Whoop, whoop. So, yes, see, I even work on my birthday. I turned 49 years old today. Wow. Where is the time fly? I'm almost at that 50-year-old hump. I think they say everything goes downhill once you get 50, but I tell you what. I feel like body-wise, everything went downhill when you hit 40. Maybe it's, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm, obviously, I'm in better shape today than I was at 40 because I was I was kind of big. But I've lost a lot of weight, almost 60 pounds. So anyway, enough about that. Thanks for coming to our podcast today. On today's episode, we're going to talk about a new part. That's part eight of Article 680, dealing with pools, bars, hot tubs, and what have you. Now, Part 8 is new to the 2017 National Electrical Code. It deals with electrically powered pool lifts. Okay, so these are those pool lifts that allow disabled people to be able to get into the pool and enjoy the swimming pools, the spas, and what have you, just like any able-bodied person would. I mean, they have every right to enjoy the the, the awesomenesses that of getting in a pool and enjoying it. And so, you know, here in Texas, we have a lot of pools, and it, it gets very hot. Today, I expect it to get 100 degrees today. And the ability to be able to use these pools um, are, are really important. Uh, in spas, uh, whether it's therapeutic or just to be able to cool off and enjoy it. So uh, we've been using pool lifts for years, whether they're mechanically operated, battery operated, or electrically powered, uh, but we really didn't have any rules to deal with it. Uh, we knew we had the equipotential bonding, and if it's metal fixed parts within five feet, we'd bond it to the equipotential bonding grid. We kind of did that, and we kind of fumbled through it, and a lot of times in the code when you see New articles get created or new parts. We're probably playing catch up and trying to to encompass things that are already common that we do. And so we're trying to make the code catch up all the time. So people say, why do you keep writing these things into the code? Well, it's a constantly evolving living document. There's there's new things that we find out. There's new hazards that, that, that make itself known. Um, and we usually have to adjust for that. So this is one of those examples. So... Part 8, which is under the purview of Code Making Panel 17. Uh, now, definitions, and we'll see definitions in a second. That's that's also under the purview of Code Making Panel 17 when it comes to dot 2, which means the definition is specific to this article. However, if it's used in more than one article, the NEC style manual tells us that it has to be relocated over to Article 100, then that's under the purview of Code Making Panel 1. So, Typically, we like to keep unique definitions in the dot two of articles because they're more germane to that actual article itself. And so you know where to go. For example, electrically powered pool lifts is very unique, obviously, to swimming pools, spas, and what have you. So it's going to be here in dot two as far as definitions. Uh, but again, as this evolves, maybe they require pool lifts to be used at natural bodies of water in 682. Uh, maybe they to allow pool lifts to be able to put people in in, in ponds or, or lakes or, or whatever that maybe we have to change. Maybe that has to also be covered in 682. I don't know. 
That's you know that's kind of the concept there. And if it did, then it would be used in more than one article. Then it has to be removed over to, uh, relocated, I should say, over to Article 100 because it's used in more than one. Right now, it's not. It's used in 680. All right. I just remember growing up. There was a back in uh, Virginia. There was a a uh, Chris Green Lake, and it's very well-known recreational lake with a lot of you know docks and and things like that and in order for people it was and it was a public thing in order for people to be able to use it there was no way to get people you know that might be disabled into that to be able to enjoy it so you can see some aspects of that um so and i don't know how that would work but you know you just you just kind of start thinking about how this is evolves and what you have to do with it, um, but we're talking about pools and spas today, so let's we're going to keep it there. Now, this is a pretty short uh, part eight. It's titled "Electrically Powered Pool Lifts." It starts at 680.80 and ends at 680.85, so not a lot of substance here. But you'll know that when we read into the general rule here, that's 680.80, that it tells us that part eight. Uh, is pretty much a standalone when it comes to Article 680. It means when you're dealing with electrically powered pool lifts, this is your part that you work with. Now, as with anything else, it is going to make references to other aspects of 680. More notably, when it deals with the equipotential bonding, some of the components there, uh, or it's going to make reference maybe when it comes to switching devices, if they're switching like disconnection means or some type of switching that's associated with the electrical power pool lift, then you know it's going to make reference to, know, to not have to be redundant. And that's what it does. It's going to make those references. So that's important. So let's just kind of, let's just kind of work through part eight. If you're in the pool industry and you're the pool guy and you're doing the equipotential bonding, you have one more component now that, that you might have to consider as part of your bonding, which you might have already done if it was within five feet of the perimeter of the pool, um, uh, inside wall of the pool, then you would have had this requirement anyway if it's permanently fixed and it's metal and all this kind of goodies. But now we're just giving you some additional direction to, to deal with, okay? So what is, let's kind of go through it and we'll explain it as we go. Uh, so it's uh, part eight, electrically powered pool lifts, 680.80 general. So it says electrically powered pool lifts as defined in 680.2. Remember, definitions in .2 are germane to this article only because they're not used in other articles. And it says shall comply with part 8 of this article. It says they shall not be required to comply with other parts of this article. Now when something says shall not be required to comply with other parts of this article, it's basically saying that when it says other parts of the article, you have these other seven parts that are inside of this one article. And it's saying, look, it's not required to meet all these other rules that are there. However, as you're going to see, it is going to make reference to other areas. And obviously, when it makes reference to it, it is very much applicable Okay, when it does that. But that's just a general statement about, hey, electrically powered pool lifts, this is my domain. This is part eight. These uh, few six uh, sections here are specifically dealing with electrically powered pool lifts. And of course, you'll have some exceptions here, and we're going to make some references back to other areas of the code. And we'll look at those as we talk about it. All right, so 680.81 talked about equipment approval. So obviously, it's stating that all electrical power pool lifts have to have have approval, and that approval being the AHJ. And of course, the AHJ is going to be looking for something to tell them to be able to give that approval to that lift for use uh, 
with spas and hot and pools and whatnot. So basically what it says is lifts shall be listed, labeled, and identified for swimming pools and spa use. So that's your general rule. However, we do have three exceptions that are, in this case, pretty important to discuss. And so we need to look at these three exceptions because, you know, pool lifts aren't a new thing. They've been around for a while. The ADA has had these rules and, and accessibility and things like this. And so this is something that we've probably already been doing, but we've had to kind of pick through the code in order to apply how we would deal with these. And all we're trying to do is give some direction here in Part 8. And I think Code Making Panel 17 uh, was very keen on that and wanted to give some guidance here. And I'm sure this will grow as different technologies, things come in. But we have um, six specific sections here that are pretty easy to follow. And when they make reference to other sections within the code, the, the reference that they make to those other sections are pretty straightforward. Okay, Not a complicated aspect. But let's look at the, the exceptions. Now, these are exceptions to equipment having to have approval, okay? Or basically, the listing and labeled. Now, everything has to be approved. I mean, if the AHGA lets you do something, they're going to give approval by giving you that green tag. But as far as being listed and labeled as some kind of uh, gateway for the approval process, there's three exceptions to where electrically powered pool lifts uh, don't have to be listed and labeled. And we'll look at each one of those. So exception number one. It says lifts where the battery is removed for charging at another location and the battery is rated less than or equal to the low voltage contact limit shall not be required to be listed and labeled. So you might approve it as an AHJ, but it doesn't have to meet listing and labeling in order to garner that approval by you to allow the project to continue on. Now, two caveats to this exception. Obviously, it has to be a removable battery that can be charged at another location. That's pretty key because if it's an internal battery that's not removable, then this exception would not apply and you, you have a problem with that. So here the battery can be removed, it pulls out, you move it to another location, maybe the pool house or wherever it's at, and you actually charge that battery. The other caveat here it says that the battery has to be rated less than or equal to the low voltage contact limit. Now. We all know that if you want to know what the low voltage contact limit, that is very much germane to Article 680, so that you know that it's going to be in 680.2 of Part 1, which is going to be giving us a definition. And so what is the low voltage contact limits? It's the voltage that doesn't exceed 15 volts RMS for a sinusoidal AC, 21.2 volts peak for a non-sinusoidal AC, uh, 30 volts for a continuous DC application, and 12.4 volts peak for a DC that is interrupted at a rate of 10 to 200 hertz. And you're going to need to know this information from the actual piece of equipment determines what's the voltage application that is being used. And you're going to see some requirements when it comes to the labeling as well, or the nameplate that goes on these pool lifts, okay? So, kind of keeping that in mind, uh, but that's where we're at here as far as the scope of what we're doing with this, okay? So, that's a exception number one, and it has those two caveats. It has to be equal to or less than that low voltage contact limits that we just discussed, and that battery has to be removable and charged at a different location. That's when exception two will get in, and that again is an exception to having the requirement to be listed and labeled. The next exception, exception number two, is dealing with solar operated or solar recharged lifts. And it says solar operated or solar recharged lifts where the solar panel is attached 
to the lift and the battery is rated less than or equal to 24 volts shall not be required to be listed and labeled. So again, two caveats to this one. The solar panels have to be attached to the actual lift and the battery, while it doesn't have to be removable, obviously it doesn't need to be removed for recharging, it, it has to be rated less than or equal to 24 volts. Okay, and, it, and if that's the case, then it doesn't have to be listed and labeled. Still going to be looked at by the inspections, still going to get their approval. It just it doesn't need to have the listing and label component. Okay. Now, the one thing I do notice in this exception, it doesn't say identified. So obviously for this use, it's going to be one that is still identified for use for swimming pool or spa use, but it's not necessarily required to have the listing and labeling component of that. Okay, so that's that solar operated. I can see that very well. I have a pool lift and at the very top of it, it has a kind of a solar panel that comes up and over the top of it. It really doesn't get in the way. It sits above everything. And it's, you know, pools are usually located in the sun area and it's going to get sun exposure. Okay, I can see those being very popular. Okay. Uh, next one would be exception number three. Again, these are all exceptions to the equipment requiring to be approved and having a listed labeling and identified component. However, these exceptions, like I say, seem to only address the listed and labeled component here. Okay, They're still going to have to be identified for their use. Um, that keeps somebody from hodgepodging something together and, you know, whatever. All right, so exception number three says lifts that are supplied from a source not exceeding the low voltage contact limit and supplied by listed transformers or power supplies that comply with 680.23A2 shall not be required to be listed or labeled. Again, 680.23A2 is dealing with either uh, isolation type of transformers or double insulated type transformers. Uh, these are also transformers that are listed for use in pool and spa applications, not just your low voltage lighting type of stuff. These are specific for pool and spa application type transformers or power supplies. If you meet all that and these actually secondary supplies, these pool lifts, then and you're not exceeding that low voltage contact limit that we talked about earlier that's defined under 680.2, then they don't need to be listed and labeled. Again, in the overall scheme of everything, they're obviously going to be identified as this. They're designed for this, and that inspector can look at that, but it doesn't have to hinge on the listed and labeling component. Uh, and so that's the importance of these exceptions. Okay. Now, if it's a typical 120 or a normal type of pool lift that's hardwired, that's fixed, that's powered this way, then the 680.81 is, is going to come into play. And I'm going to be looking for this listed label and identified pool lifts and uh, it, for use for swimming pools and spas. I'm going to look for it. But I do have these exceptions that every inspector needs to be aware of as you start to see more of these pool lifts being applied. Now, let's move on to the protection. So now we're going to talk about the protection, and then we're talking protection. We're talking GFCI type of protection, not a mechanical protection. We're talking protection itself from shock and things like that. So 680.82 protection. It says pool lifts connected to premise wiring and operating above the low voltage contact limit shall be provided with GFCI protections for personnel. Okay? So... This is a class uh, class A uh, type of GFCI. This is a uh, GFCI that's looking for the we used to we usually say five milliamps nominal, but it's the kind that operate. And we have a definition of a ground fault circuit interrupter back in uh, 
uh, Article 100, but we're really looking for those that, that will not operate at 4 milliamps or less and do operate at 6 milliamps and higher. Uh, and so GFCI protection for personnel, that's what those are for, is required. Now you notice that it doesn't, it, it, you know, it's going to be protecting it. So it just tells you that the, the premise wiring and operating above that this actual pull lifts that are connected to the premise wiring have to be protected by this GFCI protection. Typically, these are not going to be cord and plug applications. These are going to be hardwired, so you're generally going to have the GFCI protection back at the overcurrent device uh, location, uh, which means you might have a, a GFCI circuit breaker uh, is generally what you're going to have for that. That's the generally what you're going to have. That doesn't say that I might not have a faceless GFCI receptacle in this circuit. It really doesn't define that. Um, and how it says that, but all it does define is that it will be GFCI protected for personnel. So you assume how you're going to ap apply that. All right, the next thing is 680.83 bonding. So how did we get here before this? So if we had one of these pull lists and they were metal type or whatnot, then the rules in 680.26 for the equipotential bonding, most notably the application when something was within five feet of the perimeter of the pool, that it had to be bonded if it was metal, metal parts. Uh, but you also had different fittings that are associated with the pool. It might come in contact with the pool. Things like that, that meet these certain dimensional requirements that had to be bonded. But we had to utilize 680 to do this because you really didn't have any direction for these electrically powered pool lifts. That's just kind of what you had to do. So here we go. In section 83 of 680, um, we now have this bonding requirement that's plain black and white. It says lifts shall be bonded in accordance with 680.26 B5 and B7. So that's the rule for dealing with those applications. Now I'm going to remind everybody in case they forgot what those are. B5 deals with metal fittings and B7 deals with fixed metal parts. Okay, so with the metal fittings, it says, look, all metal fittings within or attached to the pool structure shall be bonded. It says isolated parts that are not over four inches in any dimension and do not penetrate into the pool structure more than one inch shall not be shall not require bonding. So we have to we have these metal fittings, we have this metal components. Uh, things like that. Again, all metal fittings within and attached to the pool structure shall be bonded. That's your general rule. Then it talks about isolated parts that it gives a dimensional requirement that says, look, if they are, are not over this application, if they're not over four inches in any dimension and they actually do not penetrate into the pool structure itself more than an inch, okay, then it's not required it to be bonding. It's, it's uh, inconsequential. However, we also have the requirement in B7. Now, most of these pool lifts, again, they do make portable ones that wheel up, and those are probably going to be one of the exceptions underneath of the requirements in Part 8 for those type, like solar-powered or battery-operated. But if they are fixed metal parts, it tells us that in B7, it says, okay, look, the bonding components, uh, the fixed metal parts shall be bonded, including not limited to, Okay, so it's not just the ones that I'm going to tell you here. It just says not limiting to. So this is kind of just an example for people to go on to understand the concept here. It says metal sheath cable uh, and raceways, metal piping, metal awnings, metal fences, and metal doors and window frames. 
Okay. These are just, it's kind of like it used to also say things like such as, but it wasn't an all-inclusive list. So now, if it's a fixed metal part, then it has to be bonded. Now, of course, this is under 680.26, so we're talking about bonding to the equipotential bonding grid. Now, we do have some exceptions here, and those exceptions will be if this, this fixed metal part is separated from the pool by a fixed barrier that prevents contact by the person, then it's not required to be bonded. Or the ex other exception says, look, if it's greater than five feet horizontal from the inside wall of the pool, then it's not required to be bonded. Or if it's greater than 12 feet measured vertically above the maximum water level of the pool, or is measured vertically above any ob observation stand, towers, or platforms, or any diving structures, it's not required to be bonded. So we do have some caveats here for the fixed metal parts, but I can tell you that usually the pool lift, in order for it to be able to function, it's going to have to be within five feet. It's not going to be greater than 12 feet, okay? And it's pretty much impossible for it to be separated by a permanent barrier, okay? So you will have these fixed metal components uh, that are required to be bonded as part of this equipotential bonding application. So that's the reason that we are sent back there under 680.83 within Part 8 when you're dealing with electrically powered pool lifts, okay? Now, again, remember the general rule now. The general rule says that this part does not have to comply with other parts of this article. That means part one through seven. It doesn't have to. However, since it does make reference back to 680.26b5 and b7, then it is very much germane and it is gonna be applicable to this application. Now, the next thing we're talking about switching devices, whether it's integrated with the lift or whether it was added as a, a disconnection means or, or whatever a switch or switching device that was added to this electrically powered pool lift, then 680.84 is reminding us that, okay, look, any of these switches or switching devices that do operate above that low voltage contact limit that we talked about that's defined in 680.2, if you don't remember what that was, if there are any of these switches that are going to operate above that level, then they're going to have to comply with all requirements of 680.22C. Now, 680.22C was a pretty simple rule, and we're all familiar with that when it comes to switching applications. Okay. So when dealing with switches, it basically said, look, switching devices that are located less than five feet horizontal from the inside wall of the pool um, are prohibited unless they're separated from the pool by a fixed fence, wall, barrier, permanent barrier, whatever. I guess I should say permanent barrier only. Um, that you know, Or unless the switch is listed as being acceptable for use within five feet then that would be permitted. So if it's a pool lift with a built-in switch, you would assume that it's evaluated for that switch to be within five feet because that pool lift tends to be right next to the edge of the pool. So if there is that switching device that's incorporated into this pool lift, then you need to make sure you do the checking of the literature to make sure that that switch has been evaluated. If that is a switching device, and obviously if it's a switch it is, that it can be within that five-foot perimeter. If it is not, or there's no clarity on that, then that's a problem with complying with that part of the code. It would be a problem complying with the rules of 680.84, which make reference to 680.22c. Okay. Now, if it's one of those exceptions to the rule type of things for equipment, you know, the solar uh, or whatever, or the battery operated or whatnot, and it's a switching device and it works at the level of the uh, that is below the low level contact limit, low voltage contact limit, then it's okay. 
it's part of that equipment. It's enlisted. You know, it's part of the design of that equipment, and it is below that low-level contact limit. Okay, then okay, then that's fine. So if you're at it or below it, it's only the issue comes with the switching if you're above that low-level contact limit. Then you have to be concerned about that five-foot limitation, unless it is actually designed for use with that specific pool lift, and the switch is actually. The switching device is actually in the literature in you know that says that it is designed to be within that five foot perimeter. Now you would think that most of the time any of those manufacturers of the pool lifts know where these these pool lifts are going to be. So if they did have some kind of switching component in it, then it would probably be evaluated for that. But you're never going to assume it. Okay, never, never, never assume that. All right. Lastly, we're going to deal with 680.85. This is the nameplate markings. So the nameplate markings are pretty important because there's certain things that we want to have on those nameplates. Uh, and it's important that it is there because it tells the inspector, one, whether any of the exceptions apply for the equipment uh, or how that's to be applied. And so let's just kind of read it and we'll try to take it all in. So 680.85 is a nameplate marking requirement. So electrically powered pool lifts shall be provided with a nameplate giving the identifying name and model, so in case the inspector wants to do a little research, we need to know the model, we need to know the nameplate, and the ratings in volts and amperes or in volts and watts. If we have either one of those two, we can calculate what we need. If I have volts and amps, I can calculate watts. If I have volts and watts, I can calculate amps. I mean, I'm able to come up with these values. Now, it also reminds us that if this lift is to be used on a specific frequency or different frequencies, that that needs to be marked on there as well. So if that's something, you need to look and see it. If there's something that has to do with the frequencies, then that would be uh, need to be on there as well. Now, it also has in there battery-powered pool lifts shall indicate the type reference of the battery or battery pack to be used with it. So that's important. I want to make sure I'm using the right battery that also probably has a voltage value that we will make sure that's being used right with this pool lift. We don't want somebody to use a different battery than it's what's provided for use with this pool lift. Okay, so we do have these, these rules in here about the battery power pool lifts when it comes to the battery or the battery packs. It says it also goes on to say batteries and battery packs shall be provided with a battery type reference and voltage rating. Okay, so all of this information has to be on the nameplate marking so the inspectors and the installers can, can determine what they're dealing with, whether or not any of the exceptions might apply in 680.81 for equipment approval, whether it's got to be listed or labeled. Uh, all of these things are important to these pool lifts. The manufacturers are required to provide these labels because that's a shall be rule, so they have to make sure this nameplate is there. Uh, now we do have an exception. The exception reminds us and says, okay, look now, the nameplate rating for a battery-powered pool lift shall only need to provide a rating in volts in addition to the identifying name and model, okay? So it only needs to provide the volts. doesn't necessarily need to have the amps or the watts. It really needs to have the volts, okay? All right, so that's what you've got there. That is basically, in a nutshell, the new part eight for all of you out there that are dealing with these uh, electrically powered uh, pool lifts. Um, and in the past, again, you had to, people were installing them, but you know, it was pretty easy to get there in 680.26 as far as bonding them because they're obviously metal within five feet, and, you know, it's a no brainer. But 
there was other rules that we needed to encompass. We needed to make sure that they knew that they were GFCI protected. Obviously, they got power going to them, and they're right next to the pool. Makes sense, right? Um, and they're going to, at some point, the componentry is going to be going down into the water. Uh, but they make pneumatic ones. They, again, they make the solar powered. They make the um, the ones that are uh, battery operated. Again, to use the exception, it's got to be a battery that's removable. Uh, all those type of things um, to do that. Now, somebody asked me one time, said, well, what if the battery is not removable and they have a rechargeable one? Well, if that's the case, then it probably still can be used. The problem is you can't use the exception. So it would still have to be listed, labeled, and identified for its use. Okay, uh, This exception just is an exception to the, the listing and labeling requirement. It's not saying you can't use one. Okay, This is just to not have it have to be uh, listed and labeled. Okay, So that's pretty much, it's only six sections here. It's a n new part to 680. Uh, so for all you inspectors and installers that are dealing with these electrically powered pool lifts, and now you have some guidance. Hopefully that's beneficial for you. Again, my name is Paul Abernathy. Hopefully you learned something from this episode. Um, we have many, many other podcasts that you can listen to. Some of them electrically, most all of them are electrically related. However, sometimes I go down to certain topics to make it interesting uh, to talk about certain things that get on my mind or whatnot. So I encourage you to subscribe or come back and listen to other podcasts. Um, visit our websites. Uh, our website, the easiest way to get there is, is go to masterthenec.com. It's M-A-S-T-E-R-T-H-E-N-E-C.com. Or electricalcodeacademy.com. That's another way to get there. You probably can just go on the internet, Google, and search for Master the NEC, and you'll find us. Um, I'm sure you can search for me, Paul Abernathy, and you'll find us. Uh, we have Twitter pages. Just go to Twitter and look for at symbol masterthenec. Again, M-A-S-T-E-R-T-H-E-N-E-C. Um, if you want information on becoming a certified master electrical co-professional, go to www.mycmecp.com or you obviously can get there from our websites as well because we are the developers and the administrators of that program. All that good stuff. Um, we have message boards and whatnot, but I want to thank you for taking your time to listen to our podcast. I have thousands of listeners. I appreciate the time that you spend with me uh, in uh, uh Thank you for giving up your time to do that. Hopefully you learned something out of these. Um, so until next time, guys, gals, stay safe. God bless, and we'll see you on the next episode.